Welcome back to another episode of the Forever Game Podcast. Tyler here, and we have a guest on today, Craig Johnson, Dr. Craig Johnson, president of Bridgewater College. And we're here to talk about education. We've talked quite a bit about how 2020 affected business, various businesses. And now we're talking a little bit about how it's affected both good and bad, the education system. I hope you enjoy it. Well, thanks, Craig, for joining us today. So we have on our podcast today, we have Jamie, of course. Mm-hmm. Hello. Jamie's here. And then we have Dr. Craig Johnson, president of Bridgewater College. And uh, we have 28 or 26 minutes left of his time before we got to get out of here. So we'll make it quick. But thanks for taking time out of your day. I know you're busy. Well, I'm glad to be here. I always appreciate a chance to interact and have a dialogue and get to know mm-hmm. folks and share. Right. And we were just talking before we started recording here that we live in a different world right now in January 2021 than in January 2020 we could have ever imagined existing, maybe in third world countries, maybe somewhere else, but not here. And over the last you know, 10 months, hospitality has been basically decimated, right. worse than that. And, but right behind that is education when it comes to just change and pain. And so we'll get to that. But first, a little bit about yourself President of Bridgewater College, a college in the middle of rural Minnesota. Um, your whole life is education. So tell us a little bit about like what kind of student were you? What was education for you? And then how did you end up getting here? Sure. Um, one thing that attracts me to Ridgewater in my role here is that I think my path is not unlike what a lot of our students are, are experiencing and have throughout the history of our, our college. Um, I really should have gone to a place like Ridgewater when I got out of high school. Uh, It would have helped me find out sooner maybe what I was meant to do or what I was good at, and I would have gotten more focus, and I I would have moved along faster, I think, in my development. But uh, I I did the traditional, you know, four-year path, but um, I was not a real serious student in high school. What does that mean? I enjoyed high school for what it was in terms of social, uh, Mm -hmm. sports, music, all those sorts of things. Um, Didn't worry about grades. I was lucky enough to be able to get through without having to work all that hard and get decent grades. Sure. I was just middle of the pack in terms of performance. And when I got done, I couldn't wait to get done. I had no plans to go to college. Part of it was probably just rebellion that it was expected to go to college. Therefore, I wasn't going to go to college. Okay. Mm -hmm. And part of it was, you know, I just... I was ready to just not do that. So I just went out and worked. I worked in uh, manufacturing and machine shops and things like that. And I, and I loved it. I really enjoyed the work. I still, to this day, uh, I, I just marvel at the craftsmanship of, you know, taking raw metal and turning it into something beautiful and mm-hmm. functional. To me, it's amazing. It's a, it can be an art form. Where was that at, Craig? Uh, I was, grew up in the Milwaukee area. Milwaukee. Yep. Okay, so Midwest. Yep. Heavy, heavy blue-collar manufacturing, you know, area, manufacturing mm-hmm. city. And, uh, but education was highly valued. You know, I'm, I'm, I consider myself first generation. Uh, my dad went to school for one year after the GI Bill to, to work and, you know, and then went into a job, and my mom didn't go to college. So. But it was always heavily emphasized in our family that that's what you do. And I was third in the family. The first two had gone on, and, and I hesitated. But then after a year or two, uh, I was ready to go. I was dying to I had decided then that I had an idea of, you know, where I might go and that it was valuable and uh, I needed something more in terms of a life plan. So I had, And I'm sure that that plan at 20 was I'm going to be president of Bridgewater College. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and it's funny because, you know, not many people end up in a role like mine who started out as an art student. But that's, that's what I was. Okay. Um, my senior year of uh, peer pleasure in high school uh, got interrupted to some degree by my art teacher who I took the class because I needed another credit set of credits and they stuck me in art. And uh, he said, you know, in, in some fashion, do you realize you've got a talent for this? I was like, really? And, you know, got me talking and thinking and looking at what I was doing and realized I enjoyed it. So uh, I had no career plan. I just thought, well, I'll go study art. Mm-hmm. So I did go study art in art school for one year in Indiana. And then I went to University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point and finished up there mm-hmm. and got a bachelor's degree in art. And there I got interested in art history, which is very unusual for art students. They usually don't care for that side of it. But I was good at that and liked it. So uh, I went to Tulane University and got a master's in art history, initially going there primarily because they're very strong in Latin American art and especially pre-Columbian art. And that's what I went down there to study. But I got bit by the modern art bug when I was down there. And uh, I fell in love with the chapel that Mark Rothko did. He was a 50s painter, uh, major American painter in Houston, Texas. And so I did my master's thesis on that. And then from there, I started moving out into, you know, the academic world. And uh, Where did you think that passion for art and art history was going to take you at the time? I didn't look <laughs> further than next week. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. I, I knew what I liked. I knew what I did. And I figured one way or another, I'll, I'll figure it out. Yeah, it'll shake out. Um, but the seed was starting to get planted already. It was, okay, what do you do with this? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, how do you get jobs? And in art history, it was obvious very quickly that unless you get a doctoral degree, you're, you're just going to have a really tough time getting a job and, and keeping it teaching. Mm-hmm. And as I kind of worked through various various jobs in academia related to art, I, I also realized that while I really enjoyed teaching, and I think it was decent at it, um, I had some success, but um, I also realized the personal side of my life that I really enjoy the outdoors. And I love fall. And mm-hmm. the idea that I'd have a job where I could hardly get any time off in the fall, you know, that was kind of the tipping point for me. So sure. when I looked around and realized that I was not the hardcore researcher to be a scholar and, and such in art history that you needed to be if you're going to make that your life. And I like to have some freedom in the fall to take a week off and go hunt and fish. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need to think about something else. Yeah. So in the midst of that, I just kind of started getting involved more in staff positions instead of teaching and uh, ended up at the University of Minnesota in the College of Architecture and Landscape Architecture and had a couple of great mentors there who probably saw something in me that I didn't see in myself yep. and, and got me involved in more uh, administrative related and leadership opportunities in the university. And that's planted a seed and sparked an interest and took off from there. Sure. Okay. And uh, that's why I'm here, and uh, I couldn't thank those two people enough, Harrison Fraker, who was the dean at that time, and then went on to Berkeley, and Suzanne Bardouche, who was my immediate boss and assistant dean, and the two of them, uh, they're responsible for me making something out of my life. That's amazing. We all have people like that at every stage, probably, Uh there's somebody. The individuals and our willingness to listen and pay attention to what they're showing us and teaching us and giving us. That's as important as education. Mm-hmm. The two have to go together. Well, yeah. the, the and you sto- got to do the work. Yep. Right. The story that you started with, though, was an art teacher, five seconds, saying something to you. Yep. And she probably didn't think anything of it. She probably forgot it by that night when she was having dinner. Mm-hmm. But um, those little things 
don't necessarily, haven't happened all that much over the last 10 months in education because most of what we've had to revert to because of this last year, not to totally change subjects, but those little like person-to-person interactions have been constricted for sure. Mm-hmm. And, um, but when we first learned of it, when you first learned of it, when did you realize this, was it February, was it March? This might actually affect the middle of Minnesota. For me, it was the NBA just closed. The NBA just shut down. It was a Wednesday. I remember it, yeah. March 15th. And I was like, what? But this is America. This is the United States of America. We, we don't do we'll, we'll be fine. Yep. And then it was, oh, I'll just be the coasts. They'll get a clamp down. Ah, it's not going to be middle America. It's not gonna, mm-hmm. When did you realize we have, to, we have to make a plan for this? It was, I believe, the second week in March when we, and I think I, our first get-together virtually was a Sunday evening of all the presidents with the chancellor. Wow. And I walked away from that realizing that the upcoming weeks and months were going to flip everything around. It was yeah, an oblique, oblique moment. Was gonna right? change. It was going to change. That was the change moment is that we, we are going to be shifting how we deliver and what we do, and we don't know what tomorrow or the next week brings, but all in a very constructive, positive fashion. I think we handled it great. Yes, we learned and sidestepped as we went, but uh, I don't think it could have been handled better. And uh, but right early on, it was very clear that you know this is such a game changer. The whole question will be, how long does it last? Uh-huh. And I don't right. think we saw at that time it lasting like this. No, yeah, I don't think anybody no. did really. If if someone would have said, oh sure, by July we'll be back to normal. Yeah. Oh July twenty twenty one. By yeah. the way, everyone would have. It would have been. I mean, maybe even if like Dr. Fauci, even some of those people, maybe if they knew that. They were not as detailed as they could have been. I think that was probably the right call. I think people would have overreacted big time. Yeah, and, and I think the biggest challenge I've found is, isn't just the, the harsh realities, the practical stuff like wearing masks and such. Um, in our college, I would say it's the open-endedness. It's the uncertainty. Mm-hmm. You know, what we repeatedly hear is some version of people wanting to know how it will be, what will we do, you know, in two months, in three months, in six months, when will it be like this? And people have a hard time handling, we don't know. Yeah. Right. We're yeah. comfortable saying that because we've learned, you know, there is uncertainty here. Yeah. But it's hard for people to grasp, you know, yeah. a lot of personalities that that just doesn't sit well. Doesn't sure. work. Doesn't you know, work they, for them. They like it in order. They like a plan. They follow yep. it. And that's one of their strengths. But we can't give people that. Right? Yeah. Uh, right now we're talking about, okay, what is fall 2021 going to look like? Yep. Mm-hmm. I truly believe it's going to be better, but how much does that mean that we can plan on? Right? Yeah. You know, what do we really say our schedule is going to be like? Do we really expand face-to-face courses and then risk backing off? Do we move ahead and risk being way too conservative? Sure. Yeah. That's what we're in the middle of right now because it's uncertain. So right. Yeah. Yep. And at least saying we don't know gives you the capacity and the space to learn more without having to stick to something. Um, and we've had to get comfortable with that yeah. because, you know, a lot of us as leaders, we maybe take too much pride in being decisive. Maybe mm-hmm. we're too decisive. Good mm-hmm. leaders make decisions. I got to make a decision. suddenly you got to back off yeah. and live in this, you know, nebulous world. Yeah. Just a big dose of humility, basically. <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. Um, so talk to me a little bit about that first big staff meeting or big, was it an email? Or how, how did you first tell them and then... With education, especially being in that world myself, 
Um, a lot of change over the last 10 months. Force changed and painful, but growth. I would say there are, it's growth, not just you know, survival, a little bit. Yep. How did that first conversation go? And then how has it kind of been pulling along, you know, very traditional system into something a little more modern? Yeah. Um, what, how I would recall it is that maybe it was sort of a shock effect, but I don't recall having a whole lot of resistance to the need to make the change. I think the handwriting was on the wall. Sure. It was more about how are we going to do this? Yeah. And, and understandably, I think individual faculty, even having panic about how am I going to do this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the folks who are already doing it, you know, it, it wasn't a big change there. If they're already teaching online or they're very comfortable. But the vast majority of our faculty were still heavily reliant on the traditional means of teaching. And yeah. many of them maybe not doing that much with technology. And to suddenly have it imposed on you, I mean, I can't imagine how they felt. Right. I mean, I, I just can't. Uh, to know in a couple of weeks we have to be doing this in a very different way. Uh, they had three weeks before we were back up and running again. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it was more the scramble of how do I reposition myself? That was, that's where all the attention was. Mm-hmm. And we have a great IT team that was able to you know, step up and help. We had enough faculty who were well-versed in it, who could be mentors to each other. Yep. And we yep. ended up with just a very small number who probably had the greatest need, but they had a great support team around them. And so we were able to get up and running the way we needed. But the one thing I'll say, and I don't want this to be negative about our faculty whatsoever, because I think it's true across the board in higher ed. Oh, yes. Is everybody's struggling. Mm-hmm. You know, other than those who taught online and, and have it figured out and are comfortable and like it. Anyone who had this forced upon them, we are struggling day in and day out, week in and week out. Getting yep. better as we go. Yep. Right? Learning Still as we go. Still figuring it out. But you you're not going to have it nailed. No. Um, so it's, it's a learning process, and uh, that's a challenge for our students, you know, because not only are they going through the same thing if they're not naturally online students or already online, but many of them have on their radar, you know, this constant assessment of the course, mm-hmm. the delivery. Is this as good as what I expected or as good as what I had yeah. before sure. face-to-face? And if they're being pushed into something else, there's – probably daily scrutiny of the quality of it and the nature of it. And that increases pressure on faculty. Yeah. Right? Yep. People don't realize unless you've taught the kind of stress and pressure you have as a faculty member. I mean, you're up there performing every day. Yeah, I was going to say, in front of what can concert. be a very critical audience. <laughs> yes. yes. You yep. know, paying customers. I mean, yeah. there, there is stress and pressure there in, in higher ed for faculty. And then to be doing it in a way that you're uncomfortable with or challenged by or maybe don't even believe in. Yeah. Um, it's, it's been a major hurdle and I can't say enough for how folks have owned it and made the best of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we all know that the faster we can get back to allowing that flexibility to teach again in a more direct personal way, the better. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, my message continues to be, let's not focus on getting back just the way we were. Right. Yeah. How are we going to be different when we can get how back? How are we going to gonna be better? And I keep pitching, we need to use technology more than we did before. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, whether it's to reduce seat time, whether it's to teach better, to teach differently. Um, eliminate be absences way. if someone can't make it or is sick. You can almost eliminate an absence. There's ways to accommodate students yeah. so much more, and that should allow us to serve more people. Right. You know, hopefully it can help student success. That's our number one priority of who we have here. 
But more importantly, how many students have we not gotten because of our method of teaching before? Sure. And if we can modify it because of what we learn from this experience, maybe we can have even more people accessing our resources to, to get an education that felt they couldn't do it because they couldn't be here every day sitting in class. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I have a question for you. The last 10 months in the growth and adaptation that you and your staff and just the system in general has had, if that was to happen naturally, because it was, tr- I mean, it's been trending that way for a decade and a half. Yeah. How long do you think it would have taken? It, what year? If you had to just guess a year, would it be where we are now? If it would have just, if we would have sat back and kept doing what we're doing and, and worked towards developing these kinds of resources and services, I could easily see 10 years before right. we were at this point. And, and some never because they would have the right and the freedom to say, this is how I believe in teaching. And sure. that's face-to-face in the traditional way. And don't get me wrong, there, there's a lot of courses and subjects that that's what they need. Yes, 100%. Mm-hmm. It, it would be really hard, in some cases impossible to do it another way. How do you but, teach welding? I mean, how, Right. It, you know, I came up through the arts. My first thought was, well, how do you do that? Right. You know, if you're not yeah. in and the Yeah, and I think you can argue studio. against it almost forever. You know, like every educational lane, there's always an argument of like, well, how? But yep. at the end of the day, like we've learned that there is a way. Right. There is a way. Absolutely. And almost every subject, I don't, in fact, stretch and say every subject has a way to do a mm-hmm. part of it virtually and maybe even better. Yeah. Um, certainly more flexibly, certainly in ways that reach students who couldn't, couldn't do it otherwise. But so our challenge will be, how do we, uh, how do we use what we learned? We can't waste what everybody went through here. Mm -hmm. And so we, while we're all dying to get back to quote normal, it's gotta be, you know, the cliche of a new normal, a different normal that is, is, is more integrated between distance, remote technology in person and the best of it all. And that'll Mm -hmm. be our challenge. Right. For, for faculty to figure out and for our, our deans to figure out our programs and what's the best way to do that. Yeah, essentially what you've done is stuffed a whole bunch of, sometimes forcibly, a whole bunch of new tools in their tool bags yep. that they've never maybe even wanted before. But now when we get to a spot where we have the latitude to choose which one we want, when we want, how, we have a whole new set of tools. Now what can we do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's true beyond the classroom. Uh, I'll share that uh, I had a, egg in my face a few times. I think distinctly one day uh, was brought to me early in the morning at a meeting that, you know, we have, we have employees pressing that they aren't safe here. They don't sure. feel they should be here and they want to work from home. And I was like, what? <laughs> you got to get in here and work. That's how we get our job done. Yeah. That afternoon we had a directive from the state about, <laughs> you need to look at how you get as many people as possible working from home. And we were like, how do we do that? Well, very quickly, I've adapted to whenever things go back to normal, it's still going to be how and who can still work from home, work uh-huh. from a distance. Uh-huh. Right? How do we build that same flexibility, that same distance servicing in, into our model? Yeah. And that's so opposite of where my head was a year I, yeah. ago about get in here and go to work. This is an on-site, direct, in-person activity. Mm-hmm. Yep. It will be, but not 100%. Right. right. And in that way, new in that new way of being, like, how do you continue to build culture and, like, relationships and foster exactly. that, like, level of, you know, cohesiveness? and. That's where you need that face-to-face. That's where you need that element because without it, you're missing something. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of value in Zoom meetings. In many ways, you have more engagement and a different awareness, and you have the chat that helps. I mean, a lot of good things about that. And we'll still use that. But, you know, there's also some value being in the same room together. Yep. Yeah, no doubt. My hope is that 
large meetings, whether it's staff meetings, board meetings, whatever, still happen on June on Zoom. They're far more efficient. Yep. Like they, <laughs> they can happen in seven minutes versus forty five minutes. Yeah. If you're just dispensing information, any thoughts, any questions, yep. you know, like you can be very efficient. Hopefully then it allows more space to do a little less structured in person. That, that's my hope for a classroom at least. Yep. Is if we can get like the nuts and bolts that we know we have to cover, those bullet points, they're done. We've covered that. Or you've watched the lecture from home. or some, That's the homework. Yep. You know, when we talk about flipping the classroom, that's what it is. Watching the lecture at home and coming into the class, and now we're doing the open-ended sort of work that we need to do. Mm-hmm. And we get more participation. I've heard a number of faculty say that they were surprised that they actually got more engagement, better attendance in some cases because of working via, you know, teaching remotely. Yeah. And in meetings, I would say, I think we have more engagement, more participation. I think when we have an all-campus meeting, more people attend it because sure. it's easier just to plug right in than to go to the meeting space. Yeah. Uh, so many people aren't comfortable speaking up, but they'll put something in chat. Yep. Mm-hmm. We record the meetings in a lot of cases so people could watch it if they miss it. I mean, yeah. there's so much more connectivity that comes out of this. When I have my class, because my, my class has moved, to, we're a hybrid again. You know, we were remote for two months, but almost all of the messages I get in chat are all private to me. You know, they, they, they are allowed to ask a question without anyone else knowing. Yep. And so I get it. And I, as the teacher, then I just, I don't say, oh, thanks, Sarah, for the question. I just start explaining that question, yeah. right. you know. Right. It gives people different opportunities to share their voice because right. we've been structured to almost the same um, like framework, you know, of communicating. And so this is allowed, like open doors for personalities to be able to have their voice heard exactly. in different ways. And, and what I think is important about that is uh, people who are very introverted, mm-hmm. don't have the confidence or the comfort speaking up. This is giving them voices they didn't have. Yeah. And we need all those voices, right? Like mm-hmm. to better the, the thing as a whole. Right. You know? Yep. Yeah, we have uh, a number of meetings where we'll have somebody, uh, our college council, for example. We have an individual who's designated that somebody can go right to that person on the council and share their question or yeah. concern. Sure. And then they relay it anonymously rather than me knowing who said what. Yeah. And, and in my mind, that should open people up to speaking more freely. Uh-huh. They don't have to worry about, you know, I know who said what. Yep. That doesn't yep. matter to me, but people would think it does. Yeah. Sometimes eliminates the politics yeah. around. Yeah, the that. fear. and. Yep. 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 Sure. So when you think about just education in general, um, like we're, we're both hoping that all of us are hoping that we've taken, we've gone through a lot of pain and change. And anytime you go through pain and change, you learn a lot. I mean, that's what we want our students to do. And we've just been forced to do it for the first time um, in quite a while, maybe. Um, talking specifically about Ridgewater and the pendulum swinging back from that four-year college. I've said this publicly a lot, but the four-year college was the best answer for everyone. And there is no best answer for everyone. But it's starting to swing back where there's more attention towards you know, organizations like Ridgewater. Yep. Um, how do you make sure that you capitalize on that? And you guys, you know, you're not trying to be a four-year college. You're not pretending to be. Right. But you still, like, how do you make sure that you are who you are and you serve the, the students that you should be serving? You know, that's the key driving question, I think, that we have to have in our minds every every week and certainly in our planning meetings looking ahead. Um, The big shift I see coming from my own single point of view is not just the greater valuing of of what we can offer at a two-year school, even as a a terminal plan, 
you know, to not transfer on. But a, a number of variations of that. And one is shorter, and that is how do we break up some of our technical programs into smaller, smaller pieces, certificates, yeah. courses that somebody could get in one semester, in one year, and it builds and they could go on to two years. Or they could stop at one semester or a year and have something that makes their life better, gets a better job, whatever. Sure. Um, I think we need to do more work in that area and structure it and get people to understand that how it, how it could work, that, that take the laddering idea and build on it more and more. So it's bite-sized little self-improvement courses. And another key piece of that is the, uh, the non-credit, what we do in customized training. Uh, I think we need to do a better job of that being an entry point and getting people to understand that there's this four-credit side of this that they could move into, and how do we make sure that there's something they could get for the non-credit training they did that could count towards the credential Sure. Uh, in some fashion. You know, we're getting better. How do we do that more and more? Uh, I think that that needs to be a, a better entry point. And we need to really recognize where some of what we can offer to people and build a workforce and help individuals improve their life doesn't have to be for credit. Mm-hmm. You right. know, there's a valid way to do it through non-credit. Um, but we don't want to make it a, a, a dead end, so to speak, a cul-de-sac where they go in there and, and they can't carry it over. Sure. Mm-hmm. How do we do a better job of it carrying over? Yeah. And then the opposite end that I've talked more and more about is to get people who realize to realize that even when they have a high level education or career goal, uh, one that might require beyond even a four year degree, a graduate degree to get into engineering or veterinarian or whatever, where is there a version of a starting point at a two year school that can give them a different beginning point? You know, you're a different kind of architect if you study carpentry. Yeah. You're a different kind of engineer if you studied NDT or something like that that we offer. Um, all those kinds of programs where I think if you look at the traditional career path of getting your four-year degree and then going on for that graduate field or starting out and even doing a certificate or a year or a two-year degree at a technical level and then moving on, Mm -hmm. you're going to have a different set of tools in your toolbox when you're that professional down the road. You're going to have a different understanding because of what you did. And right now, most of those career paths that you have in your mind that are professional – you're not thinking you start at a technical school in many no. cases. Yeah. In my, but I think yeah. it might be the best starting point for yeah. some of them. My favorite, my, my favorite angle to that is that they have a taste of the industry before they've invested $250,000. So much money, right. Yeah. There are people that, you know, I know kids that you ask them as a senior, what are you doing? They say, I'm going to be a doctor. And they say it because adults pat them on the head yeah. and tell them that they're the best ones. <laughs> and then they realize they don't like, I had a student in my class, and we went into my entrepreneurship class. We tour all over. We tour the clinic. She's going to be a doctor, a nurse, actually, a nurse. Now she wants to be a nurse practitioner. Um, she's still in, in her undergrad. We went through, and in the back lab area, there was one vial of blood that was circular. I don't know what that thing is called. But anyway, it was spinning around, and she fainted. She oh, looked really? at the vial and fainted. Yeah. And afterwards, I was like, do you think you should really go do this? Oh, yes, I, I know I'm going to. She now is like, she's told me, I can now read about some of that stuff in the books and not get woozy. Wow. And I was like, this is wow. not, this is not for you, honey. You, yeah. need, you know, yeah. and at least if they would go that route, it's, they would learn pretty quickly whether this is something they actually like or Absolutely. whether it's something they don't like. So much quicker. Yeah. yeah. And one thing I've really bought into uh, in recent years is the typical way we consider a career path is what do you want to be? And I was enlightened in recent years with the notion instead of what do you want to do? 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is, what's your passion? What's your interest? What do you want to do with your life? And then once you get your hands around that, then you start thinking, okay, what are the different jobs? What right. are the different roles that would allow me to do that? Yeah. Yep. And it could be 20 different roles then. But that older model of what do you want to be is you pick that one thing. And, and if you're right, great. If yep. you're not Yeah, it's right, a pigeonhole. It's a <laughs> pigeonhole. You know, that's where it looks like you wasted money, you wasted yeah. uh-huh. years. And if you focus more on, a, on an interest and a general path, and maneuver in it intelligently, and we're structured in education to do a better job of guiding that, and it all can build together, I think we're all better off. Um, people like to say to me, well, don't you waste your art degree you know, with what you do now? And w- one thing I look at is uh, creativity is relevant in anything we do. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think a lot of what's behind what I did in my interest is design, and design occurs in thousand different ways totally yep. there's yeah. design in what we're doing here trying to lead to college and solve covid yep so there's always pieces in there yep um but that's, yeah i think we need a broad view of where we're going and why yeah that's kind of the like final question i wanted to ask is you know what do you love about what you do specifically craig and like what keeps you passionate about it i would say a couple of things one very broadly is i worked at five or six different types of institutions in my career um, this is my third kind of foray, I would say, into two-year, uh, mm-hmm. a version of two-year education. And I absolutely believe in the mission of a public two-year college like Ridgewater. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we just are designed to help people find their path in life. And it's, yes, there's everything from efficiency, come to us, save money, et cetera. I mean, there, there's that practical streak that we yep. absolutely can play uh, that role. Um, but most importantly, we help people figure out what to do. We, we sometimes rescue people. We, we take them out of a real tough spot in their life. And through our resources and the kind of people we have and our attitude and our mission, we help them get on track. Mm-hmm. And, and without us, they might not. So it's, it's that democratic, egalitarian, open access notion of we can literally save just about anybody or at mm-hmm. least give them the opportunity if they have the desire and the willingness uh, will help get them there. Yeah. And how much better than that can you do? You know, yeah, you I mean, it's every day to do that. It's a privilege. It's, it it's something is. that needs to be, you know, like you have to respect that responsibility that you have. And I think it's, it's a cool, it's cool to have that position. It's yeah. we're, you know, I like to say we're so fortunate to be able to do that as our work. Uh, and, and everybody here buys into that and believes it. Uh, the other thing more specific is uh, about 10 years ago in a leadership program, I had kind of an aha moment, and that was, you know, when they asked, okay, what's your purpose? You know, what's, what's your goal? Why, why do you do what you do? And I came to a realization through that exercise that in my personal life and in my professional life, what I get the most energy out of is helping other people be successful. Mm-hmm. And it's easier for me now that I, I, I've kind of achieved, you could say, success. I mean, this is something that I eventually I thought about and aspired to doing a role like this, mm-hmm. not for ego, but I think a good fit for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I'm at a position where I don't have to worry about myself. You know I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not looking for another job. This is where I want to be as long as I can keep being vital here. Yeah. But now I can entirely focus on other people. Sounds and liberating. How do I help my team be successful? How do I help the faculty, the students, the staff, the college, the community? I mean, it's, you're looking, how do you help other people? Yeah. You know, what do you need? Where do you want to go? How do we help you get there? Yep. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Well, thank you, Craig, very much. Yes, thank, thank you. you so we much for your time. We went about eight minutes over your time, but... Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. It's good stuff. We appreciate it. It's been a wild year, but 
Yeah. Yes. It's so fun to hear the the impact and and the positivity and excitement around education that it's kind of given the the entire industry. And I do think that is the upside, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I think right now, I'm sure you're seeing it everywhere. Um, people are getting drained, and it's hard for us to see the upside because they're just getting worn out and tired and. Mm-hmm. It's hard to be positive and see it in a positive light, but absolutely there's going to be, but we're going to have to work to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to have to, people just, it'll be like a river. They'll naturally go back the way they were doing it if we don't yep. keep nudging them, you know, yep. to right. a different course, you know, yep. similar, but a little bit different. Yeah, and um, better. That'll be our challenge. The other piece I think that's come uh, in the midst of COVID that we didn't get a chance to talk about is the whole social upheaval about racism and inequity and social justice. That, again, is our wheelhouse because we're being challenged in our system to do a better job for everyone. For sure. Because we got major gaps when you look at the demographics. It's been a necessarily... terrible on it. Yeah, necessarily painful time. Yes. It's necessary. Yep. Yep. Yes, it was painful, but it, like social progress doesn't happen in a slow and steady pace. It happens in fits and starts of yep. pain and learning yep. and, and healing. And I, I'm glad... I, I'm not glad that bad things have happened, but I'm glad that... At least it's come to the forefront a little bit. Yep. And I think this has staying power. You know, I'm old enough to have been through some things sure. in, yeah. in our society, and uh, I don't see this one fading. When you looked at the protests this summer, that cross-section of people out there, that was America. Right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It was, yeah. it was our communities that in varying ways were going just a minute. And uh, we're being challenged in many ways in our system to say, you know, do a better job than talking the talk. Yeah. You know, let, what do we do different? Where do yeah. we improve? Where do we identify where we're falling short and changing? And, and, it, and it's painful to realize that, you know, in many ways we're not doing as well as we think we are. Mm-hmm. Right? But uh, we're getting better at data that will help measure and show us where we're making progress and where we're not. So uh, I'm, I'm really, really intrigued with where we're going to go in the next couple of years about making dramatic steps towards addressing that here. Because being especially here in Wilmer with a very diverse community, mm-hmm. we, have to be, we have to make sure everybody knows what we can do for them. They know how they can access it. And that means financially as well as time and such. And that if we are the right place for them at the right time, we're truly welcoming and we don't have barriers in there that we're unaware of yeah. or, un- right. or unwilling to address. Yep. Yep. That's a big challenge, but we're going to take it on. Yep. And it'll take a few years in order to have a, an instructor that looks like you. You can't just, you can't just make that change today. No. But um, as long as you, you keep paying attention to that being a need, you know, that's one example. But yeah. you, know, you have to, if you're going to reach certain people, you have to speak their language. And I mean that literally and you know, a little bit figuratively too, that you yep. get to go to where they are. Yep. And there's so much encouragement. I mean, I, I wasn't here, but I hear enough about it. Uh, just look at the history of what's happened in Wilmer over yes. 20 years. Look at where we are now compared to where we mm-hmm. were 10, 15, 20 years ago in terms of community relations, diversity, all of that. That's that's perfect example right there that change can happen. Mm-hmm. Well, it can and get better. It's so, it's, it's cyclical. I won't get too into the weeds, but I mean, I'm born and raised here. Like, new populations of people moving to an area, it all happens the same way. It doesn't matter what those people look like. When, when my great-grandparents came over here, they, the reason they moved out to farms in the middle of nowhere is so that they could speak their own language. They didn't have to talk to anyone else. Yeah. And they ended up in places like New Ulm and southwest Minnesota where they could just speak German. Yeah. Yep. And 
we have the same things happening now. And the people that suddenly now I, my generation could feel entitled to say, well, I'm native here. You're not. You're just 100 years removed from it. Yeah. And yeah. so it, that, that part is interesting to me. It gives me hope that we're, go- we're, we're going to get there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the generations coming up have a, a different experience, certainly, and a different attitude, uh, different awareness. And um, there's, there's a lot of positives, but wow, right now we're in the midst of times that just blow my mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been times in the last two or three months I've just been utterly depressed and discouraged by the constant conflict. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you and know, we've all like we've and, we've all felt that way, right? And yeah. so it's unifying. And in many ways, in a way, it is. Yeah, yeah. In, in in some ways, it's like it's a manufactured c- conflict. Yeah, I've I've said this before, just to like my friends that I think I could sit down if we talk if we're talking political, for example, I think I could sit down person to person with ninety nine point nine percent of the entire spectrum, and walk away in ten minutes having mutual respect. Maybe not agreeing on policy, but yep. agreeing on goals. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's just that 0.1% on either side yep. that's so loud. It makes us think that we're more different than we are. Well, and what bothers me is I think the masses are better at this than the people leading us right now. <laughs> because I think the politics have become so polarized that it's almost like the vision is in the people. It's, yes. it's lacking in the leadership because everybody's so caught up in their party politics and the mm-hmm. partisanship and and winning battles and power. And I mean, so many of our leaders, I feel, have lost sight of the big picture. And, you know, you might win a battle, but what about the war? Yeah. You know, and, the, and the war is, you know, the, the world, society, uh, humanity. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what it's about. And sometimes I don't even think that's on the radar when I watch the news and I listen to what's going on. Yep. Yeah. It is interesting how, yes, social media has brought a lot of pain, but we wouldn't have had Me Too. We wouldn't have had some of these very positive moments because you give speaking power to the general population. Yep. They can find each other for good or for bad. We've mm-hmm. seen both. Yeah, and, and I, I do think one thing that's very evident in the past five to ten years or more is uh, it's pretty hard, the fa- pretty hard to ignore the fact that we got some pretty conflicting views and some pretty extreme views in our nation. I think it was... Uh, it was hidden away. We were suppressing it more and thinking yep. it was better, and a lot of people were not saying how they really felt and thought. And while a lot of this can be very horrible when you look at it, it's a little more transparent. Yes. It's mm-hmm. out there more. Mm-hmm. We know what we're up against, and we know how differently you and I feel or you and I <laughs> yep. feel. And, yep. Okay, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, exactly. When we have a better understanding of what we're up against, then we have a better chance of, of rising above it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's amazing when you can get a collection of humans to sit around a table from all different backgrounds. If you get them to sit around a table and agree on the goal, the destination, the policies for getting to that des- destination become less important. Right. And right now people are just shouting about individual decisions and policies. It's easy to fight over that. Yeah, and we're listening less and less to each other, and I put myself in that category. It's getting harder to listen to the totally opposite view. It's just, yep. it's, we're just we almost need a timeout. Right. Mm-hmm. One thing that bothers me and I, with our tech mission here is that it's still very hard to have programs that are so workforce-focused and don't have enough um, of the humanities, of, of you know, the gen ed, sure. those things that 
will make you that great worker in that path you're on, but also make you enlightened and more aware and think happier, and see happier. the world differently. Be a happier mm-hmm. person. Yeah, be a yeah. be a broader person. And mm-hmm. and I and I don't think that's egotistical. I don't think that's Pollyanna. I think that's what the future of our K twelve schools is. That's the future of our communities of of voting of of individual behavior of families of neighborhoods is making sure that people have more than just the means to earn a good living, but also have an awareness, have an awareness of the bigger world, other views from their own, and how do you make sense of that? Mm-hmm. And our gen ed, our liberal arts courses, in large part are meant to do that. And if people come here and strictly get a workforce training and don't get that other stuff to enough of a degree, you know, we missed an opportunity. Right. Yeah. So I'd love to have our curriculum do more of that. Sure. Yeah. But it's hard because... It's not needed, and it yeah. costs more time and right. money. Yeah. Yep. So we got to solve that, I think, because otherwise we're not really giving everybody what we could. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's my hope, is that being able to be a little more efficient with some of the presentations and lecture will give us room to allow more natural empathy yep. building. I mean, yep. what you're talking about is building empathy. When you travel, you become more empathetic. You, learn, you, you realize how small Wilmer, Minnesota is yep. and yep. how... You know, you learn more about yourself when you travel than you do to other places. And, and uh, that's one of the things that I love about my class that I have is I have no requirements, and I can let the kids sit and argue for an hour. Right. And they can be completely inefficient. But then afterwards, it's my job, and I think that this is what you're talking to too, having the space to allow the instructors to say, okay, self-reflection time. Mm-hmm. Now we need to reflect on what just happened. And my job is to lay it all out for you in an objective way so that you as the, the, you know, the, the learner can go, oh, yeah, that is what I was, that is how I was acting. Oh, that's how they took what I said. I mean, yeah. all of that is just like learning empathy. Right. And it's just as important, if not more important, than what the actual you know, lesson plan, quote, unquote, was for the day. Yeah, it's just as valuable for a doctor as it is for me. Yep. I mean, it's universally valuable. Yep. Yeah, yeah. For sure. And with COVID, we've lost this, you know, I... I realize now more than ever how much I was influenced by and relied on and needed that interaction with other people, and most yes. importantly, people different from me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I got so much out of going up to visit my extended family in northern Wisconsin. Whole different culture, sure. way of life, way of making a living, way of seeing the world. Not yeah. good, bad, just different from me, and yep. I needed that. And yep. Go to Milwaukee and the roots there and people and everything from blue-collar to professional. Uh, friends back in South Dakota, you know, that direct interaction, there's no replacement for doing this, sitting down over a meal, over beer, whatever, yep. And, yep. and just talking about stuff. And you walk away and realize, you know, that that, this, that world is so much bigger than just what you think in your head. Yep. Yes. Yep. And, and you influence each other. Yeah. It's harder and to get that now. I, I find myself talking to fewer people, and more and more it's people who think like me. Yep. Yeah. That's not really good. It's amazing the how going and having that beer, talking with people that are different than you, you walk away with hope of the world, but yet when you're stuck at, when you're stuck at home and you just kind of self-filtering just the things, you're regurgitating the same stuff, right. you almost like, then I come across something different than what I've been accustomed to, an idea, and then I like get negative. I'm not, I'm less hopeful about the world when I can't be around mm-hmm. lots of different people. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. It's the open-mindedness, like it's, the practice of being open-mindedness. It's just interesting, interesting to me how that happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, we had a session the other day that only about 10 of us were at. It was a virtual session about uh, hope. And I was probably the oldest one on the line. Um, <laughs> but that isn't the only thing that set me apart. Uh, and I was open about it in there and that. 
I was the one that really embraced and felt strongly about hope of the whole group. Everybody else was speaking optimistically and sure. and, and positively, and, and that was a big part of how they felt. And, and I framed how I felt as uh, I have trust and belief and faith that things will get better and we'll get through this. But I, I walked away thinking, you know, I, I wouldn't describe myself right now as feeling really hopeful. <laughs> right. So I've been chewing on that. You know, yeah. what, is, what does that mean? Is that yeah. just where I am in my life? Is that a bad thing? Uh, I'm trying to make sense of that because yeah. I was an outlier. Sure. sure, sure, yeah. I thought I'd come across as just the old curmudgeon in the group. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Time to put him to pasture. Yep. But uh, I do consider myself a realist. <laughs> and I feel like hope isn't always reality. It's a, maybe an aspired or dreamt of reality. That, mm-hmm. That's a good thing. We need it. But I guess I'm just living in what we're up, up against right now. Mm-hmm. And having mm-hmm. a lens of hope does allow you to see opportunities for growth. That would be Correct. invisible if you weren't. Correct. Yep. Yeah, you absolutely need, if you don't have it, you need people around you with it. Right. Yep, you got to find um, it somehow. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the one thing I fell back on is I absolutely believe and know, I, I don't even question it, I know things will get better. Mm-hmm. We right. will get through yeah. this. That, I mean, that, yeah. that's a given. Yep. Maybe I feel like I don't need hope because I just well, everybody believe that. Yeah. Everybody defines it differently. Could you be. know, might be yep. faith, might be hope, might be another word, you know. Yeah, right. But if you have that belief, then that's something. You've got something. Yeah, and I think some of it is age and experience. I remember talking to my dad when he was, you know, in his late 60s, and his message to me was, you don't understand how much I've been through. (laughs) You know, if you're asking why this isn't throwing me for a loop, it's because I've been there, done that. Yeah. And and I think there's something to say for that. For sure. You know, after you've been through different iterations of change and challenge and loss and good things that, you just get a different perspective. But Here's a little story that I think you'll like. One of the people that we work with is um, Bethesda. And so um, I've been in, I've been lucky enough to be in there and talk to a few of the residents. They are the most hopeful of all people I've met. Really? Going through this. Yeah. Well, like, oh, how has the last year been? Oh, not bad. <laughs> I mean, they've, they went, you know, some of them, like, they were, They've seen a lot of they things. They grew up during the Great yeah. Depression. Uh-huh, uh-huh. They've been drafted into the military. Yeah. Yep. They're like, oh, we t- it's not been bad. What are you talking about? Yeah. Now I talk to my daughter who's in Australia once a week because now we have these iPads. I didn't get to talk to her. You know, I didn't get to see her that much. Their perspective on this whole time, to me, I was, I was expecting doom and gloom. Yeah. Because of all populations, just talking about the disease in general, you know, the virus in general has affected them yeah. most negatively. They were the most hopeful, positive people I've talked to. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's really, really powerful. Well, they just have the gift of real perspective mm-hmm. that the rest of us are like, oh, I can't believe I have to wear this thing. Yeah, well, you didn't get drafted. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's put that in perspective yeah. a little bit. Yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I had the, the great experience of, you know, knowing enough people, a generation above me that, went through really tough times you know i mean my, my parents grew up really poor uh my mother always talked about how challenged she was growing up finnish and not speaking english and being made fun of and um my father-in-law was a uh, three years on a submarine in world war ii in the pacific wow uh i'm sorry my life's a picnic <laughs> yes. uh-huh. uh-huh seriously right. so our audio is going to be a little fuzzy because we're all wearing masks i mean <laughs> you know shoot yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it, but you know, if you if you don't have that, 
either your own experience of that or enough direct to understand what others have been through. Look at what some of our new Americans have been through to get here. Good mm-hmm. Lord. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, you know, it's hard to have that perspective. Yes. But that again, that's the interaction, the talking mm-hmm. to get to know people. Yep. That's, that's how you get that. We, and I don't think we do enough about cross-generational diversity. You know, we just started talking here. One of our older students challenged us about what more could we do for senior students? Yeah. Um, to, to better welcome them, serve them, engage them. And it reminded me of, you know, uh, things we've done in the past, other places I've been where we made efforts to connect, you know, 60 and older people in the community with, with young people on campus and, and especially with yeah. new Americans that, yeah. you know, to that, that, that cross filtration that can happen between those conversations. Everybody wins by that. Yes. Totally. It is so, so, so I think important. there's a lot of room for us to, to dig into that one. Mm-hmm. Sure. Especially when you get back face to face. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, wow. Craig, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for this opportunity. Yeah, Great thank conversation. You. I need this stuff. <laughs> <laughs>